Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Interesting Hour. I'm your host, Devesh Verma, and with me, my good buddy and co-host... Justin Kupinoff. What's up, man? Not much. Chilling. Chilling. Hey, so this episode of The Interesting Hour is brought to you by Core Foundation. Core Foundation is a multimedia nonprofit. Check us out at cor-foundation.org. Like us, share us, retweet us, whatever you do, just do it. And today on our episode, we have a special guest. His name is Dr. Ken Wharton. He is a theoretical physicist, and he remoted in from the Bay Area in Northern California. Um, and he ta- we talk about his theory called retrocausality. This is a, well, how would you say this, uh, Justin? This is a dense episode. He, he really took us on the ringer for this one. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is uh, brain-breaking. <laughs> <laughs> if you but have we a made bat- it through. Yeah, if you have a background in uh, theoretical physics, uh, math, or just science, uh, more than Justin and myself, you might understand this a lot better. Um, but it was just really cool to be with him along the ride uh, and him explaining this. I, it was just things he was saying were just like, is literally mind blowing. I don't know how else to say it. Absolutely. So like, yeah. So like, retrocausality in layman terms uh, is how our future can affect our present. And if that just doesn't make any sense, then you're in for a treat for this episode because it's definitely <laughs> not going to make sense at the end of it. Um, yeah, yeah, lots of fun, lots of fun time travel talk. Um, learn about the block universe and the time symmetry. I don't know what they are, but we learn <laughs> in the episode. Yeah, and also uh, Dr. Ken Warren has been a science consultant for movies like Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Uh, which is about time travel. Look at that. So anyways, uh, check out the episode. I hope you enjoy it. One, two, three, four. And we're here with Dr. Ken Wharton. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And Justin's here as well, obviously. I'm here. I'm here. You decided to show up to work. I decided. (laughs) And come um, by today. (laughs) Yeah, so Ken... Tell us about you. Who are you? What are you? What are you? I'm a human. Uh, (laughs) A physics professor at San Jose State University. Mm -hmm. And uh, my research uh, involves quantum entanglement and retrocausality. Ooh, if that wasn't a hook, I don't know what was. (laughs) All right, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, Ken Wharton, he does some outreach, uh, education outreach, and... um, just full disclosure, I, I I just found him where there's like this uh, science Hollywood exchange email that I'm a part of, and uh, it tells us some pretty cool stuff going on in the hopes that we have more competent movies in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, I just saw this whole thing called uh, time travel versus physics, and I was like, yo, hold the hold hold the phone here. Where is this up north? Because we get we're in Los Angeles. And uh, I just drove up. <laughs> it's, it's like one of those buzz titles, like uh, like what causes cancer, like that'll get a bunch of clicks, but yeah. it's like for nerds. It's yeah. like time travel, yes, yeah, yeah. I'm there. So Everybody cl- loves time travel, yes. Everyone loves time travel. And uh, yeah, I and I was like, this this guy seems legit. You know, I researched you a little bit. I was like, all right, this guy, he seems to know what he's talking about. So I came out and it was- He didn't uh, come out with a tinfoil hat? No, like, no. Okay. I was a little disappointed about that, Ken, by the way. But um, no, it was really cool. Really cool lecture. Uh, great at explaining things. And uh, I appreciate you being on the show with us, trying to talk to our audience and educate them a little bit. Right. You've got to time travel safely. It's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, so before we get into it, like what, uh, if you don't mind me asking, like what, what, what made you decide to, to follow this in your life and how did that come up for yeah. you? Well, I mean. 
physics, uh, I've always wanted to understand how things work, why, why things are the way they are. But um, getting into uh, quantum foundations, which is my field, was uh, a strange route because I started out as an experimentalist. I started out as a, a laser guy. I was blowing stuff up for a living. And, <laughs> okay, um, that's with not, lasers? Yes. Yeah, super yeah. cool. <laughs> you know, re- real genius, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> And mad uh, scientist. <laughs> but then I got job security. Then I got tenure and uh, started uh, more actively pursuing my, my hobby topic, which was trying to make sense of, of quantum theory, which I, you know, that's why I got into physics. I want to understand all this stuff. And we still don't really understand why the universe is so weird down on these tiny scales. So I uh, got more and more involved and have a research program going, trying to make sense of it. Uh, Involving time. How old were you when you got into this? Like- so, when I was a kid, uh, my my dad's a physics uh, professor as well. And when okay. I was a kid, I'm old enough that our home movies were actually on film, and <laughs> you know he would he would show us our home movies, and then he would have to rewind the film, and he would he would leave the projector on sometimes while while he ran it backward. We got to watch our home movie in reverse, and I. I explicitly remember him telling me at the time, you know, can everything you see here going backwards still obeys the ordinary laws of physics? All the laws of physics are time symmetric. And that just seems so nuts to me. It just seemed crazy that that could be true because what I'm watching in front of me doesn't look anything like our ordinary world. And it always bugged me that somehow uh, there's this symmetry in the laws of physics that we don't see around us. And what does that mean? And uh, even as a, as a kid, I, I remember trying to puzzle this out. That's brilliant, man. I dude, parents have a big hand in that stuff, especially science literate parents. I was one of my good friends. He, he's a science. He was, he was a science major. He was a bio major and he was a, his dad was a biologist mm. <laughs> at the same college. And, um, I just asked him like, what made you want to go with this route? He's like, I just remember going camping with my dad, with my, my brother, my dad and me, it was just them three. And it was at night, we're staring at stars and he was explaining to me general relativity <laughs> to a 10, 12 year old kid, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it was blowing his mind to the degree that he just couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, Ken, you had something similar, but with film, which is even cooler. That's right. <laughs> so that's, that's awesome, man. And then you just made a living out of it. <laughs> you, uh, I'm trying to. Well, I, that's the nice thing about uh, having job security, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, my job's safe. <laughs> let's go into the crazy parts of science. Yeah, well, right. let's you, don't want, you don't want tenure to go to waste. You, of course. The point yeah. of it is that you can then explore things that maybe you couldn't otherwise. Of course, which hopefully we're going to try and understand a bit of what you're doing in this episode. I just hope it doesn't go on for like five hours. So let's <laughs> uh, let's get into it, man. Um, okay. Unless Justin, you had a follow-up question to his uh, his background. Uh no no really no I, th- I think, think that was passionate enough I think that was good that's yeah. great all right Let's get into the, <laughs> the meat the meat of this so Ken you mentioned already what your research is and uh, we already mentioned that I met you because of time traveling and you hooked me with that <laughs> with your lecture title um, right. how does this all tie together what are you, what are you working on Let's dive into it I. Yeah. Well, let's let's start with with time travel because you know people are interested in time travel and because it's thinking about time travel. I find is a really good way to frame uh, to frame some of these deep physics questions uh, in that you can't think about a time travel story um, without worrying about logical consistency and um, and you know 
how how should it fit together? And by asking these questions about time travel movies and time travel stories, it forces you into thinking a certain way about time that uh, might help us actually understand understand physics better just by carefully thinking through the issues at stake. Again, over my head. So, <laughs> should, we, should we just start with uh, some time travel movies? Absolutely, man. Well, so two of the movies I like to um, start with are the first two Terminator movies because um, they have actually very different uh, stories of time travel they're telling. In the first Terminator movie, uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's all one big self-consistent universe. Somebody goes back in time and basically causes the very universe that they came from. And so everything holds together. It's it's one nice self-consistent story. And just to be clear, we're talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger going back in time. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, yeah. and Reese, too, the, the other guy. Yeah, right, uh, Reese, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, right, it all was this big self-consistent account. But in Terminator 2, uh, that's, uh, they, they flip the script. They Suddenly now you're going back in time and changing something. You're stopping a nuclear war. So a nuclear war happened, and then you go back in time, uh, whatever then means, and then, quote-unquote, <laughs> there's no nuclear war. And so now it's not one big self-consistent universe. So I like to talk, talk about T1 time travel movies that are all one consistent universe, like the first Terminator movie, mm-hmm. and then T2 time travel stories where somehow you can go back and, and change something, whatever that means. What do you think is the more popular uh, perspective of time travel, T1 or T2? That people usually the think. overwhelming majority of time travel stories are T two. T two fits into how we intuitively think uh, about time and causation, a cause but, and effect type thing. But but T one is more is more physics based. I mean, if you uh, we should get into how physicists think about time. But basically, the way physicists think about time is the T one style. The and other movies, if you haven't seen the first Terminator movie, that might fall in this category would be Twelve Monkeys or Interstellar, um, or even Lost, actually. All was like one big self-consistent space-time block. Mm -hmm. And um, that is, uh, I think, more more science-based. Even though there are fewer movies in that, I mean, that you just had to bring up Lost. That's its own episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> just talking about the science behind Lost. Um, Can I say that uh, in the past two days, Saturday and Sunday, I was like, "Cat, I'm gonna be talking with this with this physicist, and I don't know uh, what to say, but I know he's gonna talk about Terminator. Can we at least watch T1 and T2?" <laughs> so you you've seen them recently? We like. Just sat this Saturday and Sunday, Wait, the past you, couple have days. Have you not seen these me, before? No, I had. Cat had not. And I was like, oh. you have to watch it now. Now is the time. If I'm going to go back and watch these, just I got to watch it up. Cat is Justin's <laughs> wife, and she's Canadian. So maybe she did not know about Arnold <laughs> yeah, traveling back in time. They don't know who Arnold is times. in Canada. No, oh, I'm no. Just, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so you, uh, did it still hold up? Oh, yeah. I think it's cool. I mean, yeah, yeah there's some special effects that are... Okay, well, everyone goes to special effects. We're talking about time travel. But We're but talking about T1 and T2 type <laughs> time traveling here. Um, sorry, Ken, go on there. So you're saying physicists actually view time relative to T1, like how that movie set it up. Where- well, so a lot of the big revolution uh, in physics at the um, beginning of the 20th century with Einstein uh, basically uh, revealed that uh, time and space are not as separate as everyone had thought. They're sort of inherently intertwined. Mm-hmm. And um, instead of thinking uh, 
three-dimensionally and then um, adding time as a, a special fourth dimension, uh, Einstein uh, showed that it's far more natural to think of three dimensions of space and one dimension of time all together as a big four-dimensional structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, uh, we can't think in four dimensions, but you, we can think in, in two or three. So you can picture um, a box where uh, the bottom edges, uh, one dimension is one dimension of space and, and another dimension of space, so two-dimensional space. And then mm-hmm. picture the vertical axis as representing time. Okay. So now, now you have this three-dimensional block you're, you're sort of suppressing one dimension of space. But mm-hmm. you can kind of imagine every event that ever happens uh, in the space-time of that block, you can locate as a point in that mm-hmm. block. And uh, a particle moving to the right uh, in this block would just look like a line slanting upward. Uh, it, would just, it wouldn't be really going upward or downward. It would just be sitting there. This mm-hmm. line would represent a particle in motion. And that is this block universe perspective where you think of the whole thing all at once that I'm going to be uh, talking about today and trying to help make sense of. Okay, so, and again, for our listeners, we'll have uh, a link representing what Ken is explaining to you right now because I'm sure that went over some people's heads. Well, yeah, maybe two-dimensional yeah. drawing. We'll put yeah, it in a sure. two-dimensional drawing that uh, one dimension of space on the bottom mm. and then one dimension of time going up. Right. So, like, in... The way you're explaining it, ideally, you'd see like a representative of this chart as how do I explain this? One per, like if we were to chart, uh, I think you're calling them lifelines before, correct? Like oh, world world lines. world lines. Okay, so in in its entirety, you'll just see like one line over the axis of space and time, just kind of like zigzagging or all over the place, whatever, and that represents where that person is in space and time. Correct. Right. I mean, okay. you are not just you right now. You are you a minute ago and two minutes ago and three minutes ago. And if you plotted all those points in the block universe, mm-hmm. you would form this big world line or a world tube sort of uh, snaking through the block. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be moving. It mm-hmm. would just be uh, angled. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't, wouldn't have any motion in the block, which is a big mistake. You don't want to think of anything in the block moving because to do that, you need to bring in your ordinary notion of time. But we've already represented time as a spatial axis, right, as this vertical axis. So if you bring in any motion, you've actually accidentally brought in a second time dimension, which is kind of this classic blunder so, uh, you don't want to do. Right. So in what you're saying, every, everything is as it is in that block from one point yes. to another. Like there's no moving through it. Like mm-hmm. that. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's so, no mo- it's, that's why it's called the block universe. It's like a big. In fact, originally it was a derogatory term. Like what you're saying, we live in this big block. Um, uh, <laughs> it's a, a four dimensional block. It's not a three dimensional block. That's like so, the most insulting thing you say to a scientist. It's <laughs> like, what are you, a blockhead? <laughs> this guy's playing with his letter blocks over here. <laughs> <laughs> I, so okay, all right. Um, so when you mentioned earlier that uh, just diving a little deeper into this. Um, if you were to be able to move anything around, then we're not lo- we're no longer looking at a block universe. You're looking at more of like a multiverse type thing because you're creating a whole new timeline, right? Well, okay. So in the four dimensional block, mm-hmm. um, nothing can move by definition. There's no additional time for it to move. Right. Uh, if you bring in a fifth time dimension, I suppose things mm-hmm. can move relative to that time dimension, but that's not time anymore. That's some new dimension you brought in. Okay. Um, if you want to imagine. Um, uh, a T2 style time travel story where you uh, go back in time and make different events happen. The only way to make sense of that is to imagine you're not traveling back into your own block. You're traveling into some other block. Mm 
said your block has a nuclear war in it, but you travel into a different block where there's no nuclear war. So in that sense, I suppose you maybe could imagine multiple universes for that style of time travel story. It's probably the best way to think about a T2 time travel story is that not really time travel, but more like universe travel. So does one of the, the block universe, does that, um, does that fix the problem of having multiple universes? Like, isn't like is string theory? Is that multiple? Ask the universe expert here. It just is looking at like, me. He's like, is this? I was like, ask the expert, man. <laughs> like, is is that is that is that uh, an alternative to string theory? The string theory has multiple dimensions. So, in like adding a fifth, sixth, seventh, eleventh dimension, um, but uh, it's not adding multiple universes. At least not right away. Oh, okay, gotcha. Then I confuse that. Then, yeah. Justin, come on. Oh, did man. you do your research for this episode? Come on, man. I did. I watched two Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. <laughs> <laughs> poor cat. Poor, poor cat. Uh, <laughs> she liked them, actually. No, and those are good movies. Don't get me wrong. I watched Terminator 2 as a kid, man. And that scared... I saw it in theaters. It actually scared me. I don't know what was wrong with my parents. I was definitely underage. <laughs> and they just took me in. They have a baby crying. And I remember like holding onto my mom's like, why is this our metal? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, anyways, uh, back on topic. If we're going to get lost in movies, um, so you explained the T one, T two, the block universe, and all that good jazz. And if there was any type of change, it would be introducing a new dimension. You said correct. Well, okay. I mean, let's distinguish change, ordinary change. There's ordinary change. You know, okay. I can drop a pen on the table, and that's what we consider ordinary change. But that can be represented in the block universe through the world line of the of the pen. Right. The world line of the pen can start at one time, it can be above the table, and at a later time it can be on the table, and that's all in the block. Mm-hmm. So that's ordinary change can be encoded in the block. It's then sort of a meta change, the idea that, well, can the block change that we we don't want to we don't even want to go there. That's uh, let's try to focus on on one one universe. One universe is hard enough to make sense of rather than imagining spawning off multiple universes. Well, I guess I, my question is like, um, just on a base level, like uh, what, so what are we trying to figure out? Like, why is the, the box universe, what, what is that? Block. This block, sorry, yeah. the block universe. What is that the solution to? What are we trying to find the solution to? Does that make sense? Um, yeah. So basically we have this uh, wonderful theory of, uh, space and time called called general relativity uh, that Einstein um, kind of came up with the last piece of by 1915-1916 and it's held up for a hundred years now basically there's uh, a great new discovery this last year of gravitational waves and it was essentially predicted a hundred years ago um, it, it's in the math and it's held up uh, so we have this fantastically successful model of a a block universe. And yet we have another branch of physics, quantum theory, and it doesn't fit in a block universe. It, uh, it there, we'll, we'll get into the details of, of the problems here, but basically the big challenge facing, facing physics and has been facing physics for arguably 90 years is that we have these two great pillars of physics. We have relativity and we have quantum theory and they don't play nice together. Um, and so my research is trying to see, is there a way we could get quantum theory back into the block universe? To reconcile them together, and that's what the retrocausality theory is? 
Well, that's it. Turns out that's what you're going to need if if you're going to make it happen. The mm, other way to go, plot twist. percent <laughs> of physicists think what you should do is start with quantum theory and apply those same lessons to relativity to quantize gravity. Basically, mm-hmm. um, but hardly anyone, or a few dozen of us, really working on the alternate alternate path forward, which is instead of starting with quantum theory, start with relativity. Start with this beautiful picture of the block that has survived all the experimental tests for 100 years and find a way to make sense of quantum theory in that framework. So you're looking at the problem from a totally different angle than a lot of people are looking at it? Is that what That's right. A lot of people just assume quantum theory is more fundamental, so let's start there. I'm saying, well, what maybe this block is more fundamental. Let's start there. Okay. Are you, are you a scientific renegade? He's <laughs> <laughs> a Very pioneer, man. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's not not many people, as I mentioned, uh, pursuing this line of thought. Do, do you mind if I ask you, like, just like, uh, do, do you get much flack for that? Like, I don't know how the scientific community is. Well, like, we just learned about blockheads earlier. They're being derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my department at San Jose State is, uh, I get no flack at all. Um, going to a, a scientific conference and saying, I think you should seriously consider retrocausality, uh, used to give me a lot more flack. I don't know now if people have kind of gotten used to me or actually the change I see happening, and especially this last year, is that more and more people are coming around to this, oh, we should look at that. We shouldn't just dismiss it. We should actually carefully consider it. Um, Several papers by other groups came out this summer saying, look, it's an option. We should look at it. Uh, Let's not just dismiss it out of hand. So uh, I'm getting less uh, crazy responses than I used to. So we're we're talking about retrocausality, like people understand what that is. But before we even get into that, because you can kind of the name itself kind of implies <laughs> what we're about to dive into. But um, just going more into this block universe, I think. What does it say about free will? Like, I'm sure people are going kind to of be saying, "Well, if you can't change something so great, like, what does that mean for choices and etc." Well, of course, things like I said, you can change things, right? Because in the ordinary sense of change, the the uh, pen going onto the table can be encoded in the block. And the choices in my brain that uh, lead to the pen going on the table can also be encoded in the block. Uh, What people don't like is the idea that, well, in this block, the future and past are all on equal footing. There's no magic line of now flowing through the block. It's just all there. And so people say, ah, if it's all there, then it's all... It's all has to be there. It's faded, and I have no choice about anything. That seems to make sense. Like from how I'm thinking at it, like okay, everything's there already. It's like yeah. almost predetermination. Mm-hmm. So, so like, what's the point? Okay, so let's <laughs> let's uh, take a step back and think about last year. So, mm. if, if, if you'd be fine with me saying last year is all there, sort of this big block of last year. Mm. Okay, now would you be? Would it, can I conclude that you didn't have free will last year because it's all there? No. <laughs> Justin, just like that, Ken, you convince Justin, like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> and I'm convinced. <laughs> well, hold on, but like, it, it really kind of goes into perspective then, right? Because, like, at the time, you feel like you have free will, but how much, let's, oh, you know what, man, dive into it. Retro causality, define it, and let's get into what it is. Oh, we can't do that without talking about causality. Oh, no, let's talk about causality. <laughs> <laughs> this is already blowing my mind. All right, keep going. Let's go. Okay. So, uh, in the block, um, you can't, in four dimensions, there's no additional thing to change, right? You can't say, um, okay, let's, uh, um, let's change this one thing and, 
and see how, how the change propagates through the block. That's not how it works, right? You have to look at space and time all at once. Mm -hmm. But what you can do to make sense of causality is, um, so picture, picture your, your block universe here of all, all the events, say, happening in this room uh, right now or something and, the, and over a course of a minute or, or so. And you can say, well, what if something from outside the room poked the side of the box at some place in some time? Um, and then you can imagine uh, another box. Say what, one box where the poke didn't happen and one box where the poke does happen. And you look at the differences. So basically what I'm trying to describe here is, is two events that are – everything is the same except from outside this, this block universe, one of them has an intervention – the one of them, somebody pokes the side of the box, and the other one, there's no such intervention. Mm -hmm. And then you ask, well, what else is different? What else is is correlated with that that poke? And probably your uh, mind is telling you that if you poke the side of the box, then things after that poke might be different, right? If so, if somebody uh, walked in the room that. right now, everything would be the same beforehand, but different afterward. And um, that there's a correlation between what happens afterward and this poking of the box. And we call that, we call that causation, right? Does that seem reasonable that if you poke the box, something will happen. Something I agree with different. you so far. <laughs> <laughs> now uh -huh. notice I never had to talk about time there. Um, you just talk about these two things that are correlated and whichever one that is, does the poking, that's the cause. And whatever one uh, kind of is associated with that poking, that's the effect. So um, you don't have to say the earlier one is the cause and the later one is the effect. You could define that, but then you couldn't even talk about time travel movies, right? You, if, if you just define the first thing that happens is the cause and the second thing is the effect, you've ruled out time travel. You've ruled out all possibility of retrocausation by definition. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we want to do. We want this other account of causation, the idea that if you, there's an intervention things that uh, free intervention coming from outside the system that you're thinking about, if that intervention is correlated with, with some, some fact in the block, that fact in the block is the effect and the intervention is the cause. Okay. We're following you. Does I that think, seem reasonable? I, 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 yes, that's, I think so. I, I, I think I'm getting you. I'm just worried about Justin. He's holding his head right now. Oh, I'm just, I'm just thinking. Now let's imagine, what if the poke is a time travel machine? Now what if... Um, you are sending a message into the past or, or something in some time travel movie. Mm -hmm. Now the intervention coming in is now correlated with something that happened earlier. That's retrocausation, right? Now you've done, there's been this intervention, free intervention, and it's correlated with, with Arnold appearing in the past. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that appearance of Arnold is the effect. And mm -hmm. the cause is this free intervention from, uh, from outside the block. And that's retrocausality. That, that would be retrocausation. So causation is if the intervention leads to uh, or is correlated with effects uh, with, with other things in the future of the intervention. And retrocausation is if you find things in the block that are correlated uh, before the intervention happens. That's retrocausation. But it seems to me like if you're like um – you know, Arnold, Arnold coming back like that, that can't happen because it seems like in the, like the box theory, everything's happening and has already happened that will ever happen at the same right. time. Well, not at literally or, the same time. Well, but not, not, yeah. In the same block. Yeah. Right. 
And yes, thinking about it all at once, uh, it all kind of has to hold together. And whether or not um, we can actually get time travel out of this, I'm, I'm extremely doubtful. Uh, that the oh, damn limits. it! All right, show's done. God, that's <laughs> all we wanted from you, man. Ken, you had to answer that now. <laughs> like, come on. I'm just kidding. No, keep going. Sorry. Well, uh, that's uh, something that uh, a real scientific theory is going to have to deal with. If there are paradoxes, if there are problems that show up in these science fiction movies, and uh, there's a scientific theory that wants some of these same possibilities in in the theory. Uh, looking at the paradoxes in science fiction movies is a great way to to start and say, well, is this all going to hold together? And w- the biggest paradox is this thing called about the grandfather paradox, where you go back and and uh, convince your grandfather not to marry your grandmother, and then you're never born, and um, you have this inconsistent universe. Uh, and so the, these things come up in these in these uh, models. You have to make sense of them. And you know, looking into time travel movies is a good way to do it. You know, maybe you can shed some light on this. I was reading an article a few months ago. I think it was within the past year for sure. And they were talking about the grandfather paradox, what you just brought up. Like if you go back in time, if you somehow were able to go back in time and stop your grand, your grandpa from mating with your grandmother and just, you know, mating. create mating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, just creating your parents. Um, that it couldn't happen. Like people were like, how is this uh, possible? This article I was reading was talking about how every action is an actual probability of happening. So it's not the fact that you yourself are going back in time to stop it. It's just what is the probability of this timeline of your grandpa just getting stopped from procreating, and then that's it. It's just a probability he wouldn't happen. Just well, the like problem this. with probabilities, and we'll get into this when we get to quantum theory, is that presumably you want them to be probabilities of something, uh-huh. um, uh, and you want the Arguably, probabilities really only make sense in your mind. Like, if you don't know something. If you don't know something, you can talk about a probability. Once you know something, then... That's finite. It's not really a useful concept, right? I guess. <laughs> no, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. We're talking about this big block view sure. of, of everything that, that is there. And once you know everything that's there, um, you can still talk about probability by comparing blocks. But as far as uh, having some some meta probability uh, gets gets you into some some dangerous territory there. So mm. let's let's hold off talking. All right, that sounds good. Let's take take us down this journey some more, man. So <laughs> let's go into the, we talk about causation. We briefed on retro causation. Okay, so it's um, so I've just described what I mean logically by retro causation. Now the mm-hmm. question is: Is there any way to have physics that has retro causation in it and and why why should we even consider that mm-hmm. um i already mentioned one thing at the beginning about the fact that all of these laws of physics we know are time symmetric they if you uh film a microscopic process and play it backward it looks it looks identical mm-hmm. there's no uh arrow of time on these fundamental scales um and if there's no fundamental difference between past and future then you might argue well why, why should causation always go forward? And there's some very interesting lines of uh, discussion we could have on that. Um, but there's actually, let's take a step back and say, well, how, how do we do physics? Um, when you first learned about how to do physics in high school, you're learning that there is an initial situation, and then there are laws or equations uh, force equals mass times acceleration or something. And you plug the initial conditions into these laws and you solve the equations. And then out spits the, 
the future. I mean, the future is the output of these equations. Mm -hmm. And so Newton taught us to how to do physics this way. Sometimes it's called the Newtonian schema, where you start in the past, and it's almost like the universe is solving itself like a big computer, um, spitting out one time step after the next. And this is a very common way, even physicists, I think, have of thinking about um, causation and, and how the universe works. They think of almost that the past generates the future, and that's why we see only forward causation. Mm -hmm. So you actually, I have to disclose this, um, you actually have a paper out there, correct, you can, that you can find online. It's called The Universe is Not a Computer. Right. Yeah, and you're talking about this, how this cause and effect is not how <laughs> we should be viewing the universe. Well, that's one way, that's one way to view the universe. That's a mm. perfectly, perfectly interesting way. We've gotten a lot of mileage out of that way of viewing the universe. Mm. But it, um, it turns out it's not the only way that physicists have to solve physics problems. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole other style of physics you don't learn in high school. And um, often you don't even learn in college, called um, uh, Lagrangian mechanics, where Lagrangian. instead of okay. looking just at the beginning, uh, you start the the input to the problem is how do things begin and how do they end. You you look you take a uh, one classical example. Of this is in fact this is even older than Newton. It's called uh, Fermat's principle of least time. He he argued that if a ray of light goes from point A to point B. It will always take the path of least time, that mm -hmm. ray. And uh, he was right. Basically, if you know where a ray of light starts, you know where it ends, you look at all the possible paths the ray of light might take. Maybe there's water in between or glass or a lens or whatever it is. Uh, the answer is whatever path is, is the least time. And this is a very different way of solving physics. You're not giving it an initial condition and solving an equation of motion. You're actually giving it an initial condition, a final condition, and then looking at it all at once, like in a big block, right? You're looking at all the possible paths and saying, ah, that's the one that happens. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different style of doing uh, physics, but it's one that it's not, it proves that you don't have to do physics with this Newtonian schema. There's this other Lagrangian schema that we could use instead. Why don't we learn about Lagrangian in, in school these days? Like, And plus, how did you come about it? And Were you just going through a history book well, or what was going on? I, every physics major will eventually get to this because it's, it's so necessary for doing modern physics. It's the um, There are different ways to do general relativity, but the most beautiful and general way is with Lagrangians. Uh, hmm. You can't do particle physics without learning Lagrangians. Um, it's really all of our most advanced physics is all couched in terms of this initial and final boundary solve all at once style problem. Um, and strangely, all the physicists that use this in the mathematics, they don't take it literally. They don't think, okay, this is how our universe is really working. It's solving itself all at once like a big four-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. No, they say, this is just useful math. And then you ask them, well, what's really going on? And they'll say, well, really, it's the initial state solving itself one time step at a time. Um, and uh, there's this weird, uh, <clears throat> weird fact of the matter that people use this mathematics but don't take it literally. And I'm trying to take it literally. What if our universe really is solving itself, not just as an initial boundary problem, but actually as an initial and final boundary problem, kind of solving itself, solving the whole block all at once? That's great. Ken, how did you get so passionate about this line of like this particular avenue? Like, what was it? Seriously, just the, your dad rewinding film back then, or just seeing how time goes backwards and forwards as the way we're supposed to predict no, it? No, the like, the 
impetus is trying to make sense of quantum theory. And as mm. you delve down into the foundations of quantum theory, uh, you discover that it doesn't really hold together. It's a theory that is great for spitting out predictions and it's great for all practical purposes. Mm -hmm. But if you look at, say, what is it telling us about reality? It's telling us nonsense. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't have good answers. Um, and there's something counterintuitive going on at that scale, okay? There's something, when you look at a particle physics experiment, a quantum experiment, it's spitting out counterintuitive results. And to me, that says one of our intuitions must be wrong. Now, which intuition is most likely wrong? Uh, we've gone through about three different ways in which our intuition about time is wrong. Mm -hmm. We think that time is kind of flowing forward, but in our best theories of this block universe, there's no flow. That's what you mean by the era of time? Uh, that's not exactly what I mean by the era oh, of time. Sorry. We, we sense that time has a flow to it, right? Mm -hmm. We sense that there's, you know, time is like a river, or, you know, the future is is, uh, well, we're moving into the future or the future is moving toward us. Or we, we get this, all these uh, idioms we use. Okay. The deadline is approaching, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we're approaching the deadline uh, where you have the future moving relative to us. Um, but it doesn't show up in the physics. This doesn't show up in the block universe. Uh, we have a sense of now that Einstein showed is fiction. The, the idea of now is is a subjective concept and so we have all these intuitions we know are wrong about time but the one thing we've held on to is this newtonian story we've held on to the idea that our instincts that the universe is kind of causing itself one second after the next and we've held on to this notion of time and it strikes me and is is i've thought for a long time now that that is the intuition that's most likely wrong the reason that quantum theory is so weird may be just because we have intuitions about time that just isn't isn't how our universe works. And so the 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 spooky stuff that Einstein's talking about is that what you're trying to explain to make sense of? Yeah, to to explain with the retrocausality. Does that does that solve all the problems of, so of what's the, going when on Einstein there? Einstein first used the word spooky. It mm. was in the context of these essentially these quantum entanglement experiments. Uh, the I think the full line was something like. Um, uh, we, we need to be looking for a, a, a reality in space and time, not spooky action at a distance. And, right. um, he wanted, uh, to get quantum theory back into the block. He wanted a reality in space and time. That's, that's what the block is. Mm -hmm. Um, not, and the, the, uh, alternative to that is, uh, either spooky action at a distance where, the intuition that's wrong is our intuition that if two things that are distant are affecting each other, that our intuition is there should be an intermediary. And he, and he said, well, a lot of people think maybe that intuition's wrong. Maybe instead of our intuition about time being wrong, maybe actually there is action at a distance. Or a more modern saying would be to say that there is no reality in space and time, and all these quantum states aren't even, don't even live in space and time. And so who's to say what's at a distance and what's not? Um, so there are all sorts of different intuitions you might imagine giving up. The one I'm interested in poking at is our intuition about time. Hmm. I, dude, I, I, this speechless. Is, it's speechless. Literally. You're blowing our minds, man. Like it, it's, it's hard to, to even like, I'm looking at Devesh and I'm like, where do we go from here? Like yeah, what's I'm, the like, next? Like, no, cause like you're saying things are just like, yeah, that's a, that's, 
I mean, hell yeah. <laughs> and then it's kind of like, wait, so I mean, I'm already trying to like digest what you just explained versus going on to the next topic. Well, so I gave a talk recently um, and uh, making an analogy between uh, watching a magic trick and doing a physics experiment. So you, you watch a magic trick mm-hmm. and a magician might, might try to give you an explanation. Right. And um, they, might, they might try to say, well, the reason that this magic works is I have the power to do action at a distance. I have the power to, to move things around with no intermediary. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they say, I have the power to control your thoughts uh, and to control your decisions. Uh, or they might say, I have the power to um, reach, reach into the future and learn what's going to happen next. Some hoopla. And uh, these are all um, counterintuitive uh uh, things that, that the magician might might say. And so basically we look at these physics experiments and they're like magic tricks and, and we need to make sense of them. And we don't have a magician telling us which to believe. We just have our own intuitions. And um, our own intuitions, uh, some are strong and some aren't so strong. I think most people's intuitions about time are the strongest intuitions they have. They kind of go really deep. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of people say, well, my intuition is that my intuition about time is right. Uh, and so I shouldn't, I shouldn't doubt that one. But once you know one of your intuitions is wrong, uh, your intuitions about how good they are shouldn't be trusted, right? Right. Wow. That, well, that's the whole point of science, right? Just getting rid of our right. own, like, like where is our own bias coming into this? The, the scientific method applied to our own intuitions exactly. is really the key here. And, and we should consider all the possibilities. People have considered action at a distance. That is a common thing. That quantum physicists have considered to explain these experiments. I'm but just, you're almost like talking about like magic at that point. I think you wrote something like that in one of one of your papers, and it was like, well, the the word quantum entanglement was coined by by Erwin Schrödinger, and that uh, I think in the same paper he coined the word. He basically said um, he used the word magic to describe these phenomena. He said <laughs> basically, mad. you know, these distant things can't affect each other. That would be magic. And um, sounds like an Apple keynote. It's magical. It just works. <laughs> <laughs> and so now we have to make sense of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you can figure out how magic trick works. Mm-hmm. Um, and we got to figure out how these entanglement experiments work too. So you were explaining this, you started this whole section off talking about time symmetry. Uh, yes. Symmetric versus asymmetric, I think you're going into. Um, we're, and I, we were talking about this beforehand uh, when we were discussing this episode, since it's such a complex episode we're doing right now. Um, you also brought up this: where do we see time symmetry? Like, how do how do people see this? How do they experience this, et cetera? Right. Well, we don't. We experience a very time asymmetric world. We experience mm. breaking wine glasses and scrambling eggs, and not Cat. and not <laughs> their time. But so. What would be an example of time symmetry? I, if you explain this already, maybe it just went over my okay, head. Okay, so if you uh, let's zoom in to a small scale and imagine uh, two atoms are are bouncing off each other, and you take a movie of that, and okay. then you play it backwards, and um, now they bounce off each other, going the other direction, and you ask, okay, can you tell whether this movie was reversed or not? And the answer is no. All the physics, the physical principles of these atoms bouncing off each other, is fully time symmetric, um, and so there's no. There's no time asymmetry there. It's a time symmetric process. And then you can say, okay, well, let's now put a million of these particles in a box bouncing off each other. And let's start with them all on one side of the box. And then you'll see that even though individually each one of these collisions is symmetric, uh, globally what happens is 
even though all the particles start on one side of the box, statistically, they inevitably fill the whole box. And they never un- unfill it, right? Mm-hmm. You never find suddenly, it's statistically impro- completely improbable that you would ever wait long enough to find all the, all the particles on one side of the box. And so you say, ah, there's an asymmetry there. Um, and then the big mystery then, uh, that we now know the answer to, uh, is, well, why is there an asymmetry at all? If all the individual particles bouncing off each other are obey fully symmetric physics laws, mm-hmm. why do we see these globally asymmetric phenomena like the particles filling in the box and not unfilling? Right. That's- and the answer is it's not the laws of physics at all. It's, it's the starting point. If you start at an improbable point, um, and you run physics in either direction, forward or backward. Uh, statistics tells you, if you don't know all the details, it's mm-hmm. eventually going to become a more probable configuration. Um, and there's no arrow of time in that. All the, where I snuck in the arrow of time is, notice I said I start with all the particles on one side of the box. Mm-hmm. But I didn't say you end with all the particles on one side of the box. I said you start with all the particles on one side of the box. You sneak in the asymmetry in the initial conditions of the problem. So basically, we don't need time asymmetric physics to explain all the asymmetries we see. All we need is a special initial condition. And lo and behold, we have it. It's called the Big Bang. Light clicked on in my head right now. Okay, that's already (laughs) coming together for me when you explain that to me. When you go to these panels, though, like, and you're saying, like, people have a hard time understanding, like, you're breaking it down. You're you're explaining in much more technical terms than you're telling us, I'm sure, because you're talking with confident people. And... They still have no idea. Like they just kind of write it off. Like how does that work? Like, well, do, do, it do, depends. What do you have? Like a proper topic. conversions? Like, hey, I got. I convinced like two people here. That's great. Well, let's work well, on something. Physicists love time symmetry. Time symmetry is important to physics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everyone, uh, most physicists, accept that there is some deep fundamental time symmetry to our universe. So that's not that's not the issue. Okay. And most physicists who have thought about it at least accept this um, initial condition story for explaining why we see these asymmetries. So that's not the issue. Okay. The issue then is saying, okay, we've been doing it wrong. Since the 20s, 1920s, we've been um, sort of forcing this Newtonian-style logic where the past is causing the future onto these phenomena that this just, that's not what's really going on. And um, convincing, uh, convincing people that even though they, they like time symmetry, that's not the problem. The problem is that we've been doing it wrong for 90 years. Um, that That is a problem. So sci- normally we're telling, talking to a scientist or something like that. They're like, okay, fine. How can we test this? Like, is there any way for us to test this or they can easily yeah, convince? It seems like how can you test the stuff that you're saying? Because like, you're testing the same impossible. things you're, I would assume, you're trying to speak against, right? Well, but- we haven't even got into the the... Quantum theory, really? Yet. I'm oh, just yeah. Talking about classical physics here, right? Oh, uh, oh excuse me, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. We got to get into the, the what might be going on in the quantum world before um, before we can start talking about testing it. We're not going to test it on the classical scale of particles bouncing around. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've tested time symmetry, uh, and with these one or two tiny uh, red herring caveats. For purists out there, yes, the universe is really CPT symmetric, but um, we have a bias against CPT symmetry. It's you can just every t- every time I say time, just replace that with CPT, which is a deeper symmetry, and everything goes through. So um, basically, <laughs> go, wait, we know go on, back it up, back it up, back it up, back it up. Okay. See, it's, explain that a little bit more 
to well, an yeah, elementary that was, school that was student. That addressed at the, at the uh, purists in the audience. But yeah. basically, <laughs> um, there's, uh, there are, in particle physics, there are these three symmetries. There's charge. You can flip all the positive to negative charge. Mm-hmm. You can flip, um, do a mirror image of the whole universe and flip it around. And you can take a time reverse. And if you do all three of those, everything, look, all the physics looks just the same. Um, Mind blown. And there are a couple cases, rare, unstable particle cases we don't experience usually, that um, you have that the time symmetry is arguably not a good symmetry, but um, it's a it's a red herring issue. It's not it's not important to my argument. So, for everything we just talked about, there's almost no need for it until we get to the quantum level where things start going crazy and we can't. Perceived crazy. Yeah, perceived crazy, and we don't have an explanation for it. Is right. That- there's In the classical world, uh, even with time symmetry, um, there's some good arguments that says you don't need retrocausation to explain uh, any of these classical phenomena. But that's not all we have in our universe. We have these quantum phenomena. We have these weird quantum effects. And at that scale, and for those experiments, that's where the retrocausation becomes possibly useful. Okay, so let's get into that. Like, what what's a, a specific situation you're talking about? Or like example, yeah. yeah. Well, the simplest uh, case we can get into quantum entanglement later, but the simplest case, let's do this um, double slit experiment. So the idea is you have a particle, and uh, you send it at uh, a pair of slits, and if it was a classical particle, uh, it could only go through one of them, and uh, you would see um, on the other side evidence that it only went through one. But in, in our world, in, in real life, you send uh, a particle at these slits, and it's moving slowly enough. What you see on the other side, over many runs, you send through lots of particles, one at a time, one at a time. You see this big interference pattern, just like it was a wave that went through both slits. And you can send one particle through at a time, so there's no chance they interfered with each other. And Yet, you still, over the course of many, many particles, you build up this wave pattern as if every particle went through two slits. And that's really weird. It, it doesn't uh, jibe with uh, classical physics at all. You need some new physics. You need quantum physics to make sense of it. Well, how do you know it's, it's uh, going through both slits if you only see the end, like where it well, actually this is? is the, this is a classic experiment, right? Yeah, uh, it can. So, and there are various explanations of this, some of which uh, it really does just go one, one th- through one slit, but something else goes through both slits, and uh, there are various possible uh, ways we could talk about it. But for the context of retrocausality, let's say that the evidence that you see this wave pattern built up at the end is good evidence, maybe not ironclad evidence, but good evidence that these particles went through both slits. Um, but, this is the crazy thing, you don't have to look at the interference pattern. You can move the screen closer to the slits, and then you can say, well, which slit did it really go through? And then you find out it only went through one slit or the other. So if you move the screen very close to the slits, the particle clearly just goes through one. But if you back Hmm. it away from the slits, the particle seems to go through both. And this seems nuts. In fact, there are these delayed choice experiments where you don't even choose where you put the screen until after the particle's gone through the slit, and then you make some random choice whether you put the screen close or far. And if the screen is close, it looks like it only went through one slit. 
If the screen is far, it looks like it went through two. And it's almost like the particle, and some, many people have noted this, it's almost like the particle knows how you're going to measure it. It's almost like the particle knows what to expect in the future. <laughs> Self-aware. <laughs> now, very few people will then say, well, maybe that's really what's happening. Maybe um, think of it as a block now where you don't think of it as a particle who's conscious, but think of it as uh, the beginning of experiments on the bottom of the block, on this block universe, and the end is up at the top. And you have this free choice of how to end it. Do you end it by putting the screen close to the slits or do you end it by putting the screen far from the slit? So that's like poking the box. You, you get to choose from outside the box. Mm -hmm. You get mm -hmm. to poke the box. And if it's true that every time you poke it one way, the particle previously went through one slit, but every time you poke it another way, the particle previously went through two slits, if that's really what's going on in the block, that's retrocausal, almost by definition, because your intervention, remember our interventionist account of causation, your intervention is correlated with the fact of the matter in the block, and that fact of the matter happens before you made your intervention. So that is, if that's what's going on, that is retrocausal. But then, sorry to bring it back, but it's like that, just hearing that and, and thinking of free will, like it just seems incompatible to me. Well, where's the will coming from? It's coming from outside the box, right? Your choice oh, the of, of wh whether to do one measurement or the other, that's coming from outside the box. Now, if you want to talk about what would happen if I drew a box around you making that decision, we can talk about that. But right now, we're just focusing <laughs> on the box of the experiment. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And in the box of the experiment, anything coming from the outside is effectively free. I mean, whether it's really free or not, we have to draw the box around you and talk about that. But right. let's just treat it as a free intervention. And that, by definition, in my, my earlier discussion of causation, you seem to be fine with my, that way I framed causation. And if you're fine with the way I framed it before, this is retrocausation. Hmm. Justin's like, damn it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I could stump this guy. <laughs> no. Now, uh, now, that's that's, a, now that's mind blowing, actually. The problem are the, gr the grandfather paradoxes, right? Right. So now you're just like, okay, I'm making a free choice, and there's an effect in the past. So I've just, you think, oh, I've just sent a signal down, back to the past, and I can cause a paradox. But there's this other really fascinating part of quantum theory um, called the uncertainty principle. And the uncertainty principle tells you that you can't actually measure and find out everything that happens as it's happening. You have to wait until later before you kind of can infer what, what had happened. Mm -hmm. And this uncertainty prevents you from actually knowing whether it went through one slit or two slits at the time. So even though there's this retrocausal or seemingly retrocausal way to think about this experiment, it's retrocausation without signaling into the past. You can't send a signal because you can't get out the information of whether it went through one slit or two slits until the end of the experiment. Hmm. By checking the actual experiment and seeing what right. went on. Eventually you find out. But you, you, by then it's too late to send a signal to the past. So it's almost like if you were to invent a retrocausal theory without paradoxes, you would have to have an uncertainty principle. right? You would have to have the idea that I could cause something in the past that nobody knew at the time. Like a, a hidden thing in a box. I can cause something in a box yesterday, but nobody knew what it was, so there's no signal. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's like, so, similar to the premise of, uh, or at least on par with Primer. The cat? Oh. The cat. Justin and the cat. Uh, Primer, they had in that movie, spoiler alert, they had a, 
an engineer, he created a box, which was a time traveling box, and he couldn't go back until that box was created. So once he created the box, he then enabled himself to be able to travel back. But yeah. he could get out of the box at the time, so you could right. signal into the past in that movie. Yeah, and that's it, Hollywood made it a little more interesting. Than, well, but <laughs> right. Time travel without signaling is boring because right. it's it's just retro causation that has no um, no impact on on. Uh, on cool things you can do with Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's uh, <laughs> You can't send him back naked? What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's not just the clothes that can't go back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually, how you explain that was fascinating. Uh, like, as again, you would be like, well, if, if retrocausation happens, why can't we just send like the lottery numbers <laughs> back when? You, you wouldn't know. That's right. It's, you, the key is that the uncertainty prevents you from making a paradox. And then it gets into the very interesting question of, of you know, how the universe is conspiring. Uh, if, it, say, the retrocausality story is right, mm-hmm. um, how does it, uh, the universe basically arrange itself so that you can't ever see the effect at the time, uh, even though there's all this retrocausation going on? Uh, that's a really interesting research question that I'm, I'm working on. How interesting is that, man? That's, that, that's legitimately mind-blowing. It is. <laughs> like, it would be a better argument if there weren't other non-retrocausal accounts of the very same experiment. And there are. There yeah. are um, other accounts such as having maybe there's a particle and a wave and they both go through the slits. Um, and one pushes the other around. There, there are other ways to make sense of that experiment that don't need retrocausation. It's, it, it's amenable to a retrocausal explanation, but you're not forced into it. Um, but there are other experiments where you are almost forced into it, amazingly enough. Let me ask you this. Maybe this can shed some light on your explanation earlier about you know the placement of the wall when the fro- like a photon's going through or a particle's going through the double slit experiment. Um, when I first heard of the experiment, I, it was framed in the whole like, once you observe the particle doing something, then it makes a final decision. When you're not observing it, it just goes everywhere. Uh, that's where my understanding was before, uh, prior to talking to you, and that's how the experiment was introduced to me. Um, how does that take into account with what, how you're explaining, and also the fact that explain what scientists mean when we're hearing like taking an observation versus not ob- observing, etc. Because mm-hmm. how are you not looking at like the experiment? It should always be making. Uh, well, a- so how how do we deal with things we don't know? Um, if you don't know, uh, whether, um, you're playing cards and you don't know whether there's a face down card, you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you assign it, uh, all these probabilities, right? Right. It could be this, it could be that. Um, and then uh, when it's flipped up, you, uh, you update your probability. You, you suddenly know what it is. You, you collapse it into a state of, of certainty mm-hmm. in your mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you know more than you did before. Right. Um, so, uh, Suppose this um, retrocausal story is right, and really there's something going on that we don't know what it is. So the natural way to keep track of that knowledge would be in this this um, state of probabilities, right? We would have, well, we don't know what whether it went through one slit or two slits, so let's let's try to hold all the possibilities in our mind. But finally, when we do learn something, when the card is flipped up, what we should do is update our state of knowledge, right? And when we update our state of knowledge, those pro- probabilities and possibilities seem to collapse into one reality. Now, in the case of the cards, it's clear that the reality was there all along. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You just didn't know it. Right. In the case of these quantum experiments, a lot of physicists will tell you 
that there was no reality until you looked at it. They're basically reifying these probability states. They're saying that it would be in the case of cards, saying that I think this card really is in all these possible configurations all together at once, and it's not until I flip it up that it collapses. And you could make that argument, but people would think you were nuts. It doesn't make yeah. sense. Um, that's, super, that's really superstitious. Isn't that, is, it, is this the same thing as Schrodinger's cat? Like, Well, unfortunately, the reason people don't think those people are nuts in the same sense is that the only way to ascribe reality to the situation um, that you're saying there's, I'm saying there was some reality there all along. If that's true, that the particle really did go through one or two slits all along, it, then it's a retrocausal, right? Because right. then my future choice caused that whether it went really went through one slit or two slits. So basically you have either you can view all of these probabilities as a state of reality or there is an under rea underlying reality, but it's retrocausal. And to most people, retrocausality sounds more nuts than reifying probabilities. And so more, pe more physicists would rather say, well, this state of possibilities, that's the state of reality. Um, but that, those are the bad alternatives you're left with, and a few other bad alternatives as well. <sighs> okay, so there's no other good alternative. Okay, all right. Is it, is, is, so you're saying what we have now, retrocausality, is the best explanation for what's going on there. <laughs> no, if it was just the sink, that one double slit experiment, I would say the best explanation would be this, uh, this Bohmian explanation where there's a particle and a wave, and we only see the particle, but the wave goes through both slits and it steers the particle around and, uh, and makes it look as if it went through both slits. Mm -hmm. um, that probably would be the best explanation for just that one experiment. But there are other experiments where even that explanation um, effectively fails, at least if you want to get reality in space and time. Can you give us an example of that one of those well, experiments? The, the, the example, the really the best and only example, are these things called uh, quantum entanglement. So quantum entanglement are, are experiments where there are two particles, not just one. Mm -hmm. And um, the two particles start together um, at some, they're prepared together, they're perhaps correlated somehow. And then they're separated. One is sent off to an experimenter who's typically known as Alice, and the other is sent off to another experimenter typically known as Bob. Okay. Do not and call him John. No. <laughs> it's canon. Canon, yeah. There you go. <laughs> the uh, Alice and Bob then make measurements on these particles and discover uh, interesting correlations. And now that's not a surprise, right? If I had a red card and a black card and I mixed them up, and I gave uh, one to Devesh and one to Justin, and Justin looked at his and saw it was red, he would immediately know that Devesh's card was black, right? It would, mm -hmm. You would update your state of knowledge, and you would know something about, about the other card. Or brown. He's Indian. I mean, yeah, that's the speed. Go on. But for quantum experiments, you actually have a choice of how you're going to look at it, right? You can make one kind of measurement or another. You can't do make both necessarily. In fact, you can never make both. But uh, the classic example is you can either measure position or velocity of a particle, uh, but you can't measure both. And I, I, I'm sorry, I've heard this before, but can you give me <laughs> a brief explanation of why you can't know both? Like, is well, this that... comes back to the uncertainty principle. There's this sort of inherent uncertainty, and if you know the position, then you're completely uncertain about the velocity, and if you know the velocity you're completely uncertain about the position. So you have its trade-off of what you can know. 
And um, depending on how you look at it, maybe there's something you there that you just really don't know, or there's just no fact of the matter one way or the other. Um, but you can't get both of these numbers out at the same time. Okay. You can't measure both position and velocity. And in these entanglement experiments, the, that means that Alice and Bob have a choice, not just whether to flip the card over, but actually how to flip the card over, how to look at the particle. And uh, this guy, John Bell, in 1964, proved that there is no set of hidden instructions that can be sent to Alice and Bob that can account for all the weird correlations they see, no matter how they choose to measure it. And um, really, all you need is to give Alice two choices and Bob two choices of how to look at it. And you can show that there's no way to explain the correlations they see conventionally with like initial boundary condition, common cause, influencing both of their outcomes. There's just no way to do it. Hmm. That's, that's the mystery of quantum entanglement. And this, has been te- this last year, there have been three big experiments that have tested this to great, great precision. They've done this. They've done this experiment. They sent a particle to one uh, side of campus and sent the other particle to the other side of campus, and they measured them simultaneously as, as close as they can so that if there was any mysterious influence, they would have to be traveling faster than the speed of light uh, across campus to explain the correlations. And they still see these weird quantum correlations that can't seemingly be explained in terms of an initial common cause. Mm-hmm. So you have to work backwards, and that's where retro causality comes in. Retro- well, so I don't know if you can picture or maybe show this this V-like diagram of these entangle entanglement experiments in a block universe. Mm-hmm. So we have Alice on, on the top of the V on one side, and Bob on the top of the V on the other, and then down to the vertex is where the particles are created. Right, and right the, the lines starts, yeah. show okay. that the particles are being sent. Mm-hmm. In a retrocausal account, how Alice chooses to measure it is a final constraint on one side of the V. How Bob chooses to measurement, uh, measure that particle is a final constraint on the other side of the V. And of course, the initial constraint on how the particles were made is a third constraint at the vertex of the V. And in a retrocausal account, you solve it all at once, right? You, you, you look at the whole right. problem like a big four-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, and you say, what's the solution? And now you can ex- understand how Alice's and Bob's choice of how to measure it might be affecting the whole solution if you solve it all at once, right? You see that if Alice chose one thing on one side of the V, the whole solution might look different. The mm. whole V might look different. Right. And that's retrocausality, right? Because now as Alice is poking the box and Bob poking the box and the effect that are, are correlated with those uh, interventions is in the past uh, along, all along the V. And that would be in a retro, that's called a retrocausal account of entanglement. And it basically only makes sense if you're looking at it all at the same time. That's right. Uh, looking at it all at once, right? As a big once, block, right. rather okay. than as one slice of time. If you look at it just playing like a movie, it doesn't make any sense because you're like, oh, how could the beginning of the movie depend on what Alice does later? Um, it doesn't make any sense in that Newtonian schema context. But in the Lagrangian schema context, you can, and there we have now have proof of principle theories that, that get the right correlations, you can build models that actually don't have any spooky action at a distance. It's not like Alice and Bob are secretly signaling to each other uh, across the top of the V. All the influence is going down the sides of the V to the vertex where the particle is, where the particles are. Um, there's no, no need for any spooky action at a distance. Hmm. 
Okay. There's a lot of this experiment you're explaining, uh, the quantum entanglement. Uh, isn't this the same principles they were looking at? I'm, I'm not sure if you know this. This is not your field, but like, I remember seeing something or some special that there are teams out there that are just trying to like gain teleportation, like some form of teleportation. Quantum, quantum teleportation. Yeah. Yeah. This is the same. Almost. It's around this. Again, is this the same? Technique, they're like one effect, one particle affecting the other type thing. Is that what you're explaining? Um, quantum teleportation mm. is uh, okay. Take the v, take right the v and imagine turning it into an N. Okay. Okay. Um, so now uh, the you're basically extending from uh, say from Alice's side down down to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So now uh, what quantum teleportation does is allows you to send a state um, at the bottom of the N to the other top corner of the N, right. the other side. One way to think about it would be as if the influence was kind of traveling along the path of the N, kind of into the future and then back to the past and into the future again. Um, <laughs> and that's maybe a more retrocausal friendly way of thinking about quantum teleportation. But you can also think about quantum t- teleportation using standard quantum mechanics, where the entanglement sort of spookily connects the top portions of the N. Yeah, and not. so there, there are different ways to think about it, but it's, it's exactly connected. You can't do quantum teleportation without entanglement. Okay. All right. So I'm, I'm, uh, I was worried how I framed it. If I didn't sound more stupid before, that you know, is this, you're going to make me look more stupid after. But you didn't. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm I'm starting to wrap my head around this. I'm no expert here, but I'm starting oh, to. Oh man, it's it's understand. it's brutal. Yeah. Can we just check in with each other? Like, how you doing, Dimash? I'm I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sweating a little bit, but not from any type of weather conditions. Just because this is this is a dense topic. You know? and, all right. Let me let me check in with Ken here. Yeah, Ken, <laughs> like, how are you doing? Ken, uh, are, are you frustrated as hell with us right now? Like, <laughs> oh no. Um, it's uh, it's great to to try to um talk about this at. Uh, accessible level because um, there's some really deep questions that come up at, at this level that need to be addressed before uh, you can even go about trying to build such a theory. Right? But I can, you want to make sure all the logical problems are straightened out before you get into the math. But I feel like it's so hard to just be like, me and Devesh in our daily lives and doing a podcast, living our lives, like, yeah. why the hell should we care about this? And you're like, this is why you should care about this. It's so important. And I'm like, I don't get it, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know. I just feel like that must be so you know, frustrating to you at some point. I want to back this up, man. Justin, are you doing okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, man. <laughs> you have a lot okay, of questions. So, no, it was fantastic. Question: Why does it matter? Yeah. Uh, what the explanation of these experiments is? Um, why not just we have this uh, technique, quantum mechanics, where you turn the crank and it spits out an answer, and it seems to always be right. So why should we care about what's going on inside the box? And uh, my answer to that is that that's how scientific progress happens: is by opening the box and mm-hmm. saying what's going on inside. Uh, when uh, people do that and come up with the next level of theory and the next uh, level of explanation, there have always been new consequences. I mean, nobody knew mm-hmm. what the consequence of the laser would be or quantum mechanics would be, and there have been lots of interesting consequences, obviously. Right. Huge. And um, the more we understand, the more we uh, can move on to the next level uh, by opening the box and figuring out how it works, uh, there, there have to be almost almost certainly are going to be some consequences down the road. And that's how scientific progress happens. 
Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Like you, we can't even probably predict what these discoveries are going to mean down the line. It takes another creative person to just kind of, oh, if this means this, then I should be able to do it. It creates new hypotheses and all this stuff. Like That's actually leading into my next question for you, Ken, was let's say you convinced the entire scientific community of retrocausality, right? What's it like? <laughs> like, let's just say, well, we're, are we back to science fiction? Now? I mean, I, I mean, I, I know we're still having debates about global warming. <laughs> so again, the in this unlikely scenario where you convince the entire scientific community of retrocausality, no one's arguing against you. Okay, what what can you pre- foresee this mean meaning for? What's next? What yeah, what's next? Like, that? what comes from this? Like, what? Uh, having uh, this understanding, if, if it all works, um, then uh, there's a whole new path to unifying these two great pillars of physics: the general relativity and quantum theory. Now, um, instead of quantizing gravity, you uh, you space time the quanta and uh, get quanta phenomena back into space time, and then uh, you now have hope or a new path to unifying all of physics. Which every, like I said, every time you get to the next highest level description, there are going to be new new cool consequences. Mm-hmm. And there'll be consequences for not only our understanding of things like black holes and, and cosmology, but also hopefully um, experiments that you can actually do in the lab and see uh, predictions. Because in you say, well, what if everyone believed in it? The only way people are really going to believe in it is if there's an actual prediction. Right. Prove it. Right. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to go on the old like, like speculation. That I'm talking not not believe it, but like you know, it's a foundation at that point. Like people are like, all right, this is a part of what's going on. Um, right. I'm a lapsed experimentalist. I I desperately would hope that there would be some some way to test this once there was a formal model. Like, yeah. do you even have like an idea of how to test this right now? Like, it it seems to me what you're explaining is like untestable. Like, you can't. How do you test something like that? Hey, have you seen CERN? No, I'm <laughs> no, you. Um, that's a great question, and it's a it's a fine line I'm walking as I build these models. I want to recover everything we know about quantum theory, which is quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, and also ideally uh, out will fall some new, new predictions. And then you can ask, well, where where might those new predictions be? The the two places the math seems to be indicating a new prediction might happen. One is it at um, smaller timescales than we can currently look at, like 10 to the minus 20 seconds or so. Um, and at that time scale, there, there are arguably new effects if, if any of my math is, is right. But another <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> but you, we're, we're way away from that scale. Mm-hmm. We're way away from, uh, we're down to 10 to the minus 15 seconds is pretty much the best we can do. So uh, we're not down at 10 to the minus 20. Justin's eyes just widened as you <laughs> mentioned that. He's like, huh? <laughs> Sorry, you can't see that, Ken, but yeah, Justin, you just blew his mind right now, despite <laughs> saying that one line. Um, go on, sorry. Um, but there's there's this whole uh, part of quantum theory called measurement theory that basically says when you do a measurement, you can only get these certain results. You can only get, you know, zero, one, two, or three. Um, and there's there's not even a, a way to predict what would happen if you got two and a half, or the probability of getting two and a half on one of these experiments. You you. The math says you can't happen. And so if I was an experimenter, and every now and then I would get two and a half, uh, but most of the time I was getting zero, one, two, or three, I would, I would chalk it up to experimental error. I would throw it out and say, there's no theory to explain getting two and a half. That's nuts. So I'm going to ignore this data point. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
if there was a future theory that said, well, one in a million times, you should get two and a half, that's a new prediction that maybe people had been, would have ignored until now. Maybe the evidence is even there. And since there's no theory for it, they don't pay attention to it. Right. Uh, so that's, that's my more plausible in my lifetime hope of seeing, seeing a new result is something that's actually has been seen, but has been ignored because there's no model to explain it. That's like the uh, exoplanet hunter guy. I forgot his name, the, but he's had all these data points for years trying to find exoplanets, but they were looking for celestial bodies that were too large, like really large. Oh, and he right. started looking at finer points. He realized, oh my goodness, there's a ton of exoplanets out there from the same data he had gathered from years prior. Oh, it just wow. took another team to uh, have made a discovery, uh, like a similar discovery, and he just looked at his data. It's like, this all That's right. Out. The, the framework at which you use to analyze data Mm-hmm. Um, determines what sort of conclusions you can draw from it, and changing mm-hmm. that framework, the very same, the very same data, you might see something new in. That, that's a, it's a hope. It's it's certainly far from a certainty, but it's a hope. You know, the the stuff you're doing, Ken, is so fascinating to me, and I'm sure to a lot of other people. It's exciting just to talk about this to know something new or to know more about what's going on in everyday life that you wouldn't have previously thought of. Is just kind of like. Well, how would you have not known this from before? Like the future generations are definitely standing on giants' shoulders, right? <laughs> like they're just kind of like, well, why would you know that? Like this is awesome what you're doing. Um, Thank it's, you. It's definitely also uh, ballsy because you have to go against a lot of criticism uh, and showing what you know, and not what you believe, but what you feel like we should be looking more into. Um, and I think it's great what you're doing. Just actually, like it, me going out to your lecture, just hearing about this and then you talking about it on the show it's fantastic i want to thank you for just taking the time to do that kind of thing well thanks for being interested i'm i'm glad you are I, I am too man <laughs> you believe me i am too i would figure this like this is the most fascinating stuff you can probably bring on the show um but yeah i think uh i think that we're nearing the end of it right now so <laughs> i feel so bad saying that because I, I like i, I want to feel like there's so much more and i literally even in like this last 10 minutes I feel like science is just the best of a bad situation. We got science. no idea what's going on. <laughs> you know, science is so cool, you know. Just science the shit out of everything. <laughs> like, do the Martian type thing. Um, you know, uh, Ken, I, like, we're, again, we're getting the near the episode. Um, wh- like, d- drop some knowledge on us. What other points that you feel like we didn't touch on that you feel people should know? I, I feel I, just, I feel bad asking him. I feel like there's so much, but oh, yeah, there's plenty of questions. There I are ask, any things like uh, did finish well, up the notes here? <laughs> let's see. Uh, I guess uh, one thing we didn't quite stress enough. I don't think in the block universe, um, a lot of people like to think about the block as a growing block. The idea that um, you know, picture your box of the future, and then they imagine well that top is now. And then it keeps growing into the future. Um, so there, there are two problems with that. One of which I think I mentioned that nothing can change in this block, right? So you can't have any growth mm-hmm. without needing a second time dimension over which things can change. Mm-hmm. Um, there's time is just a spatial axis going up. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't also run normally as well. Uh, but the other important issue I didn't touch on was that relativity tells us that how you slice the box, how you say, okay, this moment is now, and you just kind of slice it across and say, okay, this is this is right at noon. Uh, relativity tells us that is totally subjective. Uh, a different observer in a rocket ship 
would slice the exact same block in a different way and say, oh, no, this is what's happening now. It would slice it in an angle. And a different observer would slice it at a different angle and say, oh, no, that's what's happening right now. And so Einstein showed us that this, this idea we have of now is a complete fiction. It's something that is uh, subjective. Um, it's just no different from here. Right Here is, is to us a special place. Uh, now, it seems right now, it seems like a special time. But, of course, right now, it also seems like a special time. And right now, it also seems like a special time. So they're all special. There, there's no now that's one that's more special, and just as there's no here that's more special. It's a completely subjective uh, concept. So I wanted to uh, hammer on that because a lot of people um, like to imagine that there's something special about now, but there's there's not, at least not at, in physics as we understand it. You know, you're touching on this, and we had not mentioned this prior or anything. I just got to ask you this: uh, Are you familiar about any kind of handicap language has on our understanding or our Advancement in understanding the universe or anything science-related. Have you language? Yeah. So yeah, well, all of our idioms about time involve space. I mm. mean, we—if you think about every—I already mentioned, you know, deadlines approaching and things right. like that. Every single idiom we use, pretty much about time, is an analogy to space, mm. um, and that is both good and bad in that it. Um, it helps us think about time as a spatial dimension, but mm. it hurts us because we think about, we don't put all of the time on that spatial dimension. We keep ordinary time running in the back of our mind as we think about time stretching out to the future. Mm. Or actually, in, in if you speak Mandarin, all the idioms have time going down, hmm. uh, not forward. And in, in English, the time uh, future is ahead of us, right? Right. My wife's uh, an English teacher, future, and she's talked about this yeah. before. In China, the future is down, and there's another uh, Andean language, I think, where the future is behind you in all the idioms. So that's, nuts. Uh, that's just more evidence that it's, it's how we make the analogy between time and space. Um, is It's in our language, and it's in how we think about it. But there's the mere fact that different languages can have different idioms and have time be down or forward is evidence that it's just an analogy. It's right. not... Uh, it's just the best we can come up with to try yeah, to. Yeah, you know, it was a TED talk <laughs> I watched about um, just how language can inhibit us from asking the right questions. You know, like there's translations from way back or beer. Or beer. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, like there's, uh, they gave examples uh, in this TED talk. I wish I remember who was talking about this. It was so long ago when I watched this, but um, he was. Uh, it, yeah, he was talking about um, he or she. I can't even remember that much. But the examples they were giving was like. Why can't air see or something like that? Like something ridiculous of the, of the direct mm. translation, but their language didn't allow them to understand things a specific way or be able to be open to that kind of understanding of what they're learning about or what they're researching, et cetera. Right. Even, even the word is is a problem for me because it confuses people because if you're talking about what is real, people like to think I'm talking about what is real right now. Um, but um, to me, I'm thinking in four dimensions, right? I'm saying, okay, the whole block is real. And I've, I've had these back and forth conversations with people where they m are misunderstanding what I'm saying because they think I'm talking about, uh, when I say the word is, they say, oh, that's present tense. Uh, that's just now. <laughs> right. And I'm like, no, no, we need a new word like is for four dimensions. We need like, well, what's real in four dimensions? <laughs> and, and there is no word like that. So I use is, you know, it all is real. The future and the past, it all is real. But, um, 
Maybe maybe we need a new word for four dimensional. <laughs> we being. need a new word for us simpletons. <laughs> you know? That depends on what your definition of the word is. Is <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's there's a lot of wisdom to that quote. Yes. That's amazing. Um, Justin, I think you want to lead us off, right? Yeah, now? I think so. As long as as long as you're not too worried, I feel like we cut it off a little bit short, but man, it was it was so intense and I hope you you realize that uh, dude, if if you're okay with it, I mean If I blew I, your minds, I'm happy. So. Good, oh, good, oh, good, fantastic. Good, good. Oh, we'll, we'll air the episode then. <laughs> that, fantastic. <laughs> but hopefully if if we if we have more questions or like even if there's, you know, some some discoveries in the future on what's going on here right now, like it'd be great to have you come on yeah. and, and and maybe talk about some of that stuff? Yeah, once once there, I mean, I never actually explicitly said, but there is no full retrocausal model of all these phenomena. And there are a few of us trying to build such models, mathematical models mm-hmm. that um, would fit everything back into space and time. This is all uh, outlining a research program, not saying uh, we have the answers. So um, over the course of uh, the next five ten years, I hope as more and more people are getting interested in this approach that we'll actually have some uh, mathematical models I can get on and talk about. Yeah. Say, ah, this is a new way to think about this experiment, and this it tells us that this is what's really happening in that experiment. And um, that uh, will have to await uh, the future uh, theory developments, or maybe it won't happen in my lifetime. Maybe somebody listening to this will have to... Uh, pick up the torch and, and finish the problem. Well, hey, man, you're young, bro. I got faith in you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure when you figure out the theory of everything, interesting hours, your first call. <laughs> uh, Justin, All right, last question. Oh, okay, last question of the whole thing. All right, so what's your, what's your favorite part explaining to two dunces like me and Devesh, your, like this whole theory, and what is the part you absolutely hate the most? Uh, well, my favorite part is just getting people to look at their own universe in a different way, right? We're very set in our ways and think about things in a certain way. And anytime there's a new way to look at exactly the same thing, uh, and I can open, open somebody's eyes to that, um, that, that's always, uh, the highlight for me. Well, it definitely happened here today. Respect. Respect. um, Usually the, uh, uh, the worst part are, are bad retrocausality jokes, but you guys, you guys haven't haven't really made any really terrible ones. Are so, you sure? Uh, Do you, were you not listening the entire time? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I can't. Uh, I'm going to sound like a complete fool on this episode. You know, like I, I'm normally the one that get, like the nerd out for this stuff. I'm like, yeah. you got so, you got some heavy things you're working on, man. I actually have a follow up question. Yeah, this is. Uh, I just need to know because when I met you, I can tell you're uh, a film guy. You definitely like uh, you definitely like your movies. So, what's your most favorite? Other than the, I, if you have to say Terminator, that's fine. What's your most favorite uh, movie regarding? I guess just time travel or just anything regarding your research and your least favorite. Um. Well, I so I like these these T one style style movies. Mm-hmm. Um. But um. I, I mean, one of them I really like was the the um, the time uh, travel scene from the third Harry Potter movie was was very fun. That was not the whole movie, but there was right. this, this oh, very little rock throwing thing. Nice, oh, guys, yes, don't yes. spoil oh, for people. Whoa, okay, uh, not everyone's seen Harry Potter, Jeez, guys. What's rock wrong is with everyone during the movie? No, no, <laughs> yes, but Harry Potter spoiler warning <laughs> for any <laughs> Potter fans out there. There was what was it called? The Time Turner, right? 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I really liked uh, that. I mean, like, it's hard to build a good T1 uh, story uh, where it's all one one self consistent universe, and and they did uh, a very good job with that. Um, and Twelve Monkeys is another another good example. Twelve Monkeys of, is good of times. a great time travel movie. Love that movie. I, I've said this off air, but I'll say it on air too. I do think uh, Triangle is one of the scarier, better time travel movies I've seen. I will have to I, check. It, it, it is. Yeah, me too. I haven't seen. I know it's it's an indie movie. Uh, I don't even know if it's made in the, in the U.S. I think it's a, it might have been a foreign flick. I can't remember, but. Um, when I did watch it, I cannot tell you, like, my mind was just as blown as this episode <laughs> when Ken's explaining some stuff. And it was, <laughs> I, I liked it a lot. I mean, watch, someone's going to watch it like, that movie's stupid. But like, hey, man, <laughs> if you like time travel, I definitely recommend you watching that movie. Um, I will track it down. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ken, uh, where can people find you online if they want to see more of your research or like what, uh, what's kind of well, stuff they got? If you, uh, uh, Google uh, my name. You can track down my email address at San Jose State University and um, Ken Wharton, W-H-A-R-T-O-N. And uh, if uh, you want to read a general audience account of some of this stuff, um, we have some uh, popular science pieces on Nautilus and Eon. But uh, probably the best one to start with, if you Google the phrase, the the universe is not a computer. I think you mentioned that one. Right. you can uh, find some of these ideas laid out in uh, hopefully a generally accessible way. I have read that essay, and it's actually really nice. It, it, you outline a lot of things eloquently, and I didn't feel like a complete idiot reading it, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you actually won an award for that, no? Uh, I, this, this was written for an essay contest that mm. I keep winning uh, third prize for. I, <laughs> my last four essays, uh, have all won third prize in this contest, which, uh, which I can't complain about too much since it comes with, uh, each one comes with two grand. So, um, there you go. I, Congratulations. I just have to get up to the, the first and second prize now. Man, boy, there's some retrocausal <laughs> things we can do. Um, yeah, no, uh, is that a bad joke? Please tell me that was a bad joke. I need at least one bad <laughs> joke. In this. Absolutely terrible. Thank yeah. you. All right, great. Um, Ken, uh, you're doing some great things. And also, people can check you out in the special features of uh, uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman. You were this is true. You're That's a science too console. Cool. I got to check that out. And I'm yeah. just excited to see that movie. I, I used to watch that show. As a yeah. Kid, so. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Ken, you've been around the block a little bit. So I appreciate you stopping by here. Well, thank you, uh, Devesh. Thank you, Justin. And... Uh, yeah, I uh, hope uh, the audience uh, enjoys hearing about this stuff as well. I hope so too. I'm sure they have. I mean, <laughs> you're on the show. <laughs> They're going to enjoy it. Um, Ken, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to sign off and uh, hopefully we'll be chatting with you soon. Yeah, uh, thanks, man. I hope, I hope we get a chance to, to do something else in the future. This has been Well, when awesome. I solve all the mysteries of the universe, again, you'll be my first call. Yes. Excellent. It's a tall order. <laughs> Only you can do it, sir. All right, all right man. Thanks so much. Have a good okay, one. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, uh, you guys still there? Yeah. Is you everyone guys, okay? Uh, you guys all right? <laughs> is, there, is everyone else okay? Because I'm not. I'm <laughs> definitely not. That was, uh, yeah, listening to that again was just like, oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, could, I could listen to it a few more times and still try to wrap my head around some of these concepts, but um, a very enjoyable episode nonetheless. Brilliant guy. Absolute brilliant guy. I'm so glad someone like him is in the world. <laughs> Thinking about yeah, this. for like, sure. You had to have a you had to have some smarts on you to think about this stuff, man. Yeah, thinking outside the box for sure. Um, yeah, any uh, 
he's constantly putting out other stuff too. So follow this guy. He's uh, written a lot of articles, continues to do so, and he gives lectures all the time. So very interesting guy. Follow him and see what what he's up to next. Yeah, especially on YouTube. Uh, he's all over the place. So uh, yeah, everyone, thank you for tuning in for this episode. And again, this episode is brought to you by Core Foundation. Uh, check us out, cor-foundation.org. Like us, share us, do stuff. And we'll see you next time. Peace, guys. Bow, 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 bow.